0: Well, a few years after that, I joined AWS. This was during COVID and a lot of user groups, because we have a very vast and deep AWS user group community. And a lot of user group leaders were wondering, well, how are we going to do events when everything's virtual? And so one of the folks on my developer relations team reached out, said, hey, does anyone have any like thoughts or recommendations? I said, well, I have this operations guide that I wrote to help us manage these 24 chapters around the globe for my sales community maybe it would be useful for some of the user group leaders.
1: This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech players, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John with Asianometry. I am your host, and I'm here with Mark Birch, AWS Global Startups Advocate. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. Really just a big pleasure to be here. Great, great, great to have you. So I think we can get started off You know, tell me a little bit about your journey and how you come to be here in Taiwan.
0: Well, I'm really excited to be here in Taiwan, in Taipei this week for Meet Taipei. So I'll be speaking there on Web3, also meeting up with founders and startups to just listen and hear what they're doing, some of the challenges, how AWS helps. So this is going to be a really fun week. And this is my role as an AWS startup advocate to be in various different startup ecosystems and communities to not only to listen to what startup founders have to say, And also to be a storyteller. So much like we're doing here on this podcast, it's to help startup founders get a bit more visibility about what they're building and hopefully give them encouragement through our different programs
1: and services that allow them to build, grow and scale. A really interesting job to just kind of go around and talk to different CEOs (laughs) and startups. What is that experience like in terms of just seeing and dealing with all those different industries and all that?
0: It's incredibly rewarding, but it's also overwhelming because... I came from that path. I was a startup founder. And not only have I been there in the crucible of the ups and downs that is required to be an entrepreneur and building on what's a very lonely journey, even if you have co-founders, have a team, it's really all on you. And after my startup and as I was working with startups in New York City, mostly focused in B2B enterprise technologies as a mentor, advisor, sometimes investor, it just gave me a lot of awareness of just how challenging that journey can be and how you can be an incredibly talented individual. You can have an incredibly talented team, but oftentimes you also need an ecosystem and support mechanisms to help give you to boost along the way so you can have a successful outcome. So that's why I say it's both rewarding, but it's overwhelming because the need is so great across all these different places. As I travel to, for example, Cape Town, where I was last week, and the Africa startup ecosystem, and you hear some of the challenges about how startups are trying to get by, even though they're incredibly undercapitalized, but still having incredible impact across the continent. And I hear that same story time and time again, whether I'm in Portugal, whether I'm in Canada, whether I'm out here in Asia, where I've spent a lot of time as well. Uh, in fact, I was supposed to be the Asia-Pacific startup advocate for AWS, but we had this little thing called COVID, uh-huh. which came a long <laughs> way.
1: <laughs> so where have you been so far this year? Like, Do you keep track or is this just like it's all blur?
0: I think I will keep track when I do the accounting at the end of the year. It, it's a bit of a blur, but I've been different continents. I started the year focused mostly in the US and starting to travel around but also went out to Europe uh, we had our Berlin Summit been out to Singapore I gave some talks in Thailand Australia Bangalore and been to Dubai uh, spent a couple of weeks uh, not only in Cape Town but Johannesburg South Africa uh, I think uh, after this uh, journey here in Taipei I'll be out in Cairo for rise up Summit wow so it'll be there's a lot of different things that are in the works but all of it is, in, again, in support of startups and seeing where we can be impactful to
1: help them along their journey. So how does kind of like you sit down with a startup founder, they have their own journey, they have their own story. Like, how do you get to kind of the core of that experience, what they really want, what they're looking for in, you know, a relatively short, like a manageable period of time? It's
0: definitely a lot of people that I intersect with. And I recognize that time is fragmented, if you will, because I tend to meet so many people, given the fact that I'm speaking, I'm creating content. But again, I always think about from the startup founder first, and I work backwards from there. And I can't always help everyone. And that's a hard realization you have in this role, because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of startups across the planet, and they have to figure some of this journey out on their own. But when I do sit down with a founder and they want me to check out their presentation, watch their pitch help them with a question that they may have around AWS, I'm always thinking, you know, how can I provide a resource, a connection, maybe just a link to some information that can help them in that immediate point in time? So for example, I've given a lot of talks recently about startups and generating revenue. Why? Because we're in an era right now where funding is tight. And so you either have to think about cutting cost or finding customers. And so I've been doing a lot of talks around how founders should think about sales the key fundamentals that they need to be able to sell effectively and also to scale their sales efforts from founder-led sales to scale sales. And in a conversation, if they reach out to me and they say, hey, I'm having challenges with sales, I can point them to a series of blog posts I wrote and say, hey, here's a start. If you have questions, feel free to reach out to me. Or maybe someone has a question about AWS credits. They signed up for AWS Activate. It's helped them with all sorts of support resources, training, content, targeted offers, and obviously credits, which a lot of startups definitely love to have. And so sometimes founders will have questions about Activate, and I will, again, I'll point them to resource or connect them with an account manager to help them along their journey. And then sometimes it's more of a technical nature, like they need help with understanding a different service. You know, we provide 200 of them, so there's a lot of, you know, different ways that you can use these building blocks to build your startup and your MVP or minimal viable product. But obviously there's different ways of architecting. You can build your architecture as a big monolith, which is kind of the typical way startups start off with. You can think about microservices strategy, you can go serverless, but oftentimes the choices can seem daunting. And so I can give them some advice or connect them with Solution Architect that can maybe take the conversation a bit further down the road and a bit deeper down into the guts of the question that they have and
1: the things that they're trying to solve. Based on your experience and your opinion, what is something that startup founders don't know as they start out on this journey that they probably should be thinking more about, especially in this new sort of atmosphere?
0: When I started as a a founder myself, I think you come in with a ton of assumptions. Oh, I know my domain. i have these skills. What you don't understand though, is how invisible you become. And what I mean by that is when you're in a job, you have a network, you have customers, you have connections, you have management leaders, you're a known entity. So from my perspective, my own story is that I had been at Oracle. I've been there for two plus years, had a lot of success, had connections with a lot of senior ranking technology leaders in big telco companies in the U.S. As soon as I went to the startup side, that vanished. Yes, people would be nice. Mm -hmm. They would give you words of encouragement on your LinkedIn update. But beyond that, they were invisible because you weren't necessarily as relevant anymore. And so for some founders, particularly if you've come from industry, if you've had several years of experience, that could be a, a real shock to the system. And so it's almost as if you need to build your network from scratch. And you still have those connections and you'll still hire from that pool. But now you're really are on your own. That's why I say entrepreneurship is often very lonely because you really do jump into the ocean at that point And you have to swim for yourself and you have to figure out the direction you're taking and your pace and what resources you're going to bring along the way to help you to survive. So that's one thing. I'd say the second thing is related to that is understanding how critical it is to have a team or have a community. And one of the things I realized in my own journey was that in New York City at the time, there wasn't a really strong tech startup ecosystem. So there wasn't a ready pool of other entrepreneurs I can reach out to, to say, hey, I have a question or I'm having this challenge or what do you think? There's no one I could bounce ideas off of Now fast forwarding many years later, I'm at AWS, the resources and the communities that you have access to is so very different. Now, obviously from place to place this is still evolving, but New York City has obviously become now a Mecca for startup activity. Taiwan is now seeing a lot of startups that have had a really great level of success. And from that, you have communities that you can plug into. From the AWS perspective, we've been putting a lot of investment into bringing, say, CTOs together through our CTO fellowship programs. We've been doing a lot of things around building out accelerator programs and really building not just cohorts of startups that can get access to credits or training or help or mentorship, but also connecting with each other. So we have these really great communities that have been forming from cohorts through our accelerator programs that not only are being helped by AWS, but are also helping each other. And that is something that I wish I had in
1: my time as a founder that now many founders have access to. It's kind of interesting that yourself and also what AWS is doing to build a community, right? You, you wrote a book about this previously. And what are some of the things that an individual has can do to help further that progress? Like how to make and prove this community that's going around you?
0: Yes, I, I did write a book called Community in a Box. And what was interesting, I'll give you a little bit of the background as to why this book exists and then come back around to some of the success criteria. So after my startup journey, I was doing a lot of mentoring, helping out startups. And the most common question I would get would be, hey, Mark, I need some help. I don't know how to sell. And to me, this is crazy because you are a startup founder you've done the hardest thing you could possibly do, which is leave whatever you're doing prior with a nice cushy paycheck and then jump into this crazy like startup world. But I would come back around and say, okay, let me give you some basic building blocks to consider. Well, then I started to become the person that people in New York City would go to for any questions around sales. And I want to help. I have that heart to want to help others succeed. But at the same time, I also can't be doing a whole lot of like one-on-one coffee meetings because at the end of the day, I get these incredible like caffeine migraines and, <laughs> and it's just not scalable. It's, it's like i only helping this one person at this one point in time. And so I thought, why not instead try to figure out a way of scaling myself or better yet to remove myself from the equation so that people can get the help that they need. So I put together this, what I thought would be a small meetup. It was in this place called Workbench, which was a New York City co-working slash accelerator program for enterprise B2B tech startups. And I reserved a room, held maybe 30 odd people, sent it out to my network, said, hey, we're going to have just a get together. I'm inviting some founders to tell their stories around how they learned how to do selling and just come. It'll be free. What I thought would be maybe 20 people had showed up ended up being over 80 in an August afternoon in New York City where we didn't have the AC on. And it was definitely a very sweaty two and a half hours with room just packed with people listening to not only the founders, but also listening to each other, getting to meet each other, build relationships, connect, share ideas. And it became a success. I thought that was a disaster, but people started to come month after month after month. And eventually it wasn't just founders. It was salespeople then sales leaders, sales teams would attend. I would start different groups in different cities. So we would have this sales group, not only in New York City, but in Boston, then in Philadelphia, then in San Francisco, Chicago, Toronto, then we went overseas. So we had a chapter in Hong Kong and Singapore. Well, fast forward, we had 24 chapters around the globe, Mm -hmm. 30,000 people, all built on me not knowing at all what to do, making all sorts of mistakes. It was really tenacious at best trying to keep this whole thing trucking and moving along. A few years after that, I joined AWS. This was during COVID and a lot of user groups, because we have a very vast and deep AWS user group community. And a lot of user group leaders were wondering, well, how are we going to do events when everything's virtual? And so one of the folks on my developer relations team reached out, and said, hey, does anyone have any like thoughts or recommendations? And I said, well, I have this operations guide that I wrote to help us manage these 24 chapters around the globe for my sales community. Maybe it would be useful for some of the user group leaders. So I sent it off. It was 18 pages. But then I said to myself, well, gee, I've run a bunch of virtual events and I didn't really include those in that guidebook. So right. let me like rewrite it. That ended up being a bit longer. And I said, you know, maybe I should have other people read this because this is like my own kind of wonky way of thinking. Let me get some other ideas. So I sent it out to like people I knew in my network and I got a bunch of feedback. And I said, wow, that's a lot of feedback. Like 40 people came back to me with suggestions. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. So then I just started writing. And remember, this is COVID. So we weren't really doing like, anything outside. We weren't traveling. There was not any in-person events. So for two months straight, I could just be in my house writing. And after two months, I had what looked like a book. And I said to myself, okay, let me see if I get this published. They said it would take like a year to get it out. I said, I can do this all myself. So I went on Amazon. Kindle Direct Publisher learned the entire process. Hired a copy editor, designer. There was a book. So this book's been out for two years, and I do get a lot of questions from founders, ecosystem builders, like accelerator programs and such, even investors. And they ask me like, "How do you define a community? How do you know it's successful?" And I say, "Well, it's kind of like when you know you have product market fit, but I like to call it community market fit because your product, when you're in a startup, if you're building a community, your community is your product in a sense." And you have to think about why it needs to exist in this world. Does it have people that care enough about that? And are you doing the things to enable it to promote it, to draw people in? And so I often give a, a talk where I talk about the core underpinnings of what creates a sustainable community. Hmm. And so you really need to think about that why from a member perspective that hits upon their motivations. You gotta build a true fan base. You gotta be really careful about the balance between noise and signal. And you got to be able to bring people into the fold around values and ways of doing things that connect people together. Because ultimately, a community is not successful if there's no trust. Trust is a currency for a community. And so when you look at success metrics, much like you would look at success metrics for your product market fit, you're looking for those signals. You know, are you getting traction? In my own example, building out the sales community, it was, Indicators such as where were people learning about the meetup? If they were learning about it from me, that's okay, but that's based upon my own work. A community needs to be outside of the influence of its founders in order to be impactful. So when I started doing regular surveys and the majority of survey respondents were learning about the meetup, about the community from other people, mm-hmm. then I knew that, that was a sign. we were hitting the inflection point on word of mouth. The other thing is you also think about value creation. So value is how a community, in a sense, is evaluated because that is what is drawing people together. That's why people initially want to be involved because they want the content. They want the talks. They want the information. And so if you are building value, that starts to be the the impetus for creating anticipation through events that you host, which then hopefully drives one-to-one engagement. So you're building that stickiness around people wanting to continue to be part of the community and contribute to the community. And maybe they themselves are starting to contribute content. So you also look for contributions that are outside of the core leadership group of a community. Mm -hmm. And when you start seeing those contributions start to inch up, then you start to see the beginnings of a sustainable, long-term, scalable community.
1: The use of content as one of those success metrics is very intriguing as a content creator myself. Before AWS, I
0: came from Stack Overflow the world's community of developers contributing content, that is all user-generated content. And any community, whether it's a Stack Overflow, whether it's my sales community, whether it's our AWS user groups, it all depends upon people seeing that there's something there that is going to help them in the immediacy. But long-term, much like any sort of network, you know, a network of two computers coming together, not that interesting. When you have billions of computers coming together, you have the internet. The same... Dynamics are in play that were driven by Metcalfe's law in any sort of community that you build. So you always think about how to bring people together to not only consume content, but to be content creators. And that was the success of Stack Overflow was bringing these passionate developers who wanted to help other developers around the planet with questions that they had around general programming questions and issues that they were facing. And that's what created this massive repository of very valuable programming content for anyone
1: to access for free. So speaking with all these different communities around the world and like talking to all these different founders, what's been the bigger trends in the recent days? What's going on in the startup world right now?
0: We can't avoid the fact that there's a bit of a slowdown when it comes to funding. I think it's the number one question on the minds of many startup founders out there today. But putting that aside, you still have to do the same fundamentals as any startup. Now you need to just figure out how to do this in a much more capital constrained manner. So many founders have just resigned themselves to the fact that, okay, funding is going to be really challenging for this year Mm -hmm. and probably into a good portion next year as well. And that's not going to change. There's certain economic headwinds and things we recognize right now that says we're going to be in a bit of a slowdown. I've been through two of these slowdowns. So the first thing I say to startup founders is to give them a little bit of encouragement and hope. I went through dot-com 1.0 bust. I went through the financial crash, in fact, when I had my own startup. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But it's there when you build in a way that is going to allow you to survive in this point in time and Mm -hmm. to thrive. And it comes down to the same three fundamental things. Being able to build on a platform that's going to allow you to do that fast and cost-effectively, Also, being able to find ways of broadening your visibility so -hmm. you can start to attract customers, investors, partners. And then lastly, thinking about your go-to-market strategy and how you're able to monetize and generate revenue faster than you were thinking of previously. And so if you start to think about those three things, those are the trends I see globally that are driving startups. So as an example, think about building your MVP, doing so in a cost-effective manner. So this may mean rethinking your architecture and moving from a more of a compute-centric architecture to something that's leveraging serverless. So lowering your costs, maybe leveraging an AWS well-architected review Mm -hmm. to start to help you optimize across different parameters like operational excellence, performance, cost, and other ways that allow you to build in a more optimized way. And leveraging tools like, say, AWS Amplify to be able to build and roll out features a lot faster than you would previously. When I think about visibility, this is the whole reason why I have my own AWS Startup Show. So it's a platform that I started during COVID to enable startup founders to tell their story. And so being able to connect with your partners, whether it's AWS, whether it's other organizations that you work with, to leverage their platform and their voice. To help extend your reach out there in the world to customers, partners, and investors is hugely valuable. And then when I think about go-to-market strategy, I think about, can you leverage the partners that you're building with to give you a leg up? So does it make sense to deploy on AWS Marketplace? You know, if you're a SaaS solution, that's a marvelous way to offer up your solution to a global AWS customer base who only needs to click a button to start to use your product right then and there. And you're able to monetize through that digital channel so you don't have to spend resources on selling or uh, revenue capabilities. So you can do both co-selling, co-marketing with AWS for your offering. So those are some strategies that startup founders can think about and programs to leverage that can help them get the leg up in what they need to do to be able to build successfully in an environment that is not the most conducive for fundraising. So build on fundamentals first, and that's across the board whether you're here in Taipei, anywhere in Southeast Asia, India, Africa, U.S., wherever you are, those fundamentals will never change. That's true. Even in a point in time where we look at last year, record startup funding. A lot of businesses, a lot of startups never made it in that environment either. Because again, it comes down to fundamentals. Are you building a product which is fundamentally adding value to this world? That's changing a relationship of users. And you really got to think about that from the perspective of the user first. And look, I love building stuff. I started my career as a developer, been an engineer, love tinkering. And that's good. But when you're trying to build a business around that, you can't build it around tinkering. You got to build it on things that customers need. I mean, this has been the AWS story from the very beginning. Yeah, we worked with the customer, listening, starting with the challenges that they face and working backwards into a solution. People ask, well, you know, you have all these you know, 200 fully managed services, we didn't create that because we thought, oh, okay, this would be a great idea. We created those because we listened to customers. And from that, we evolved these different solutions. So starting with things like storage, compute to things like IoT and artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that was the inkling of a conversation we would have with customers and hearing that same story over and over again that allowed us to say, okay, this is worth building. Let's do it from their perspective. And I think startups really need to not just listen to their own intuition, listen to customers, get at least the core of the idea, and then use your intuition to innovate on the solution and iterate on it. And if you take that approach, you're at least setting yourself up for potential success. If you miss that first step, well, that could be a very, very long journey with no results.
1: I remember you mentioned a little bit about separating signal from noise. How do you kind of determine whether or not oh, this is just random, a lot of noise coming in, just I happen to hear a lot of it, as opposed to this is something real here.
0: You know, part of that is the innate feel of the entrepreneur. It's a bit of the risk you take because you're never certain. But I just had a conversation recently with a startup founder asking me something along the same lines as your question. They were working with a big enterprise. They were seeing a lot of these signals around their interest. I said, that's great, but are you building a solution for them? Are you building a solution for organizations like them? And you really gotta be careful about how you listen. You know, when I talk to founders, really anyone that I mentor around active listening, you gotta understand that you will have your own internal biases. We put on happy ears, meaning we like to hear the things that are confirmation of what we believe. And we tend to reject or not listen to things that don't conform to those beliefs. And so you really need to listen intently. And also actively think about the biases that you have, because if you don't listen with the intent of filtering out the bias, you could be listening to a lot of signals that tell you you're going in the right direction when in fact you are not directionally correct. And so in this conversation with the founder, I said, you know, as you've been having conversations, have you also been having conversations with say some other financial institutions? or other big enterprises outside of just financial services to confirm whether you have a solution around your business process management engine that you're building to be broadly applicable. Because you're not going to be able to boil the ocean, but you need at least like a use case that's going to be salient and useful enough that it's going to be a valuable business long-term. We often use this term product market fit, and I think it's the wrong saying. I like calling it market product fit. Because instead of focusing on the product and trying to fit that into a market, we should be finding a market and identifying the product that could be the best solution for addressing their needs. And so as you start to think about the signal noise question and whether you're building something which is going to be valuable, make sure to listen and also to actively be aware of the biases that you have so you're having enough conversations so you can find the signal.
1: And what is your opinion on like big deals? You mentioned big customers, right? Yeah, I know a lot of founders are always chasing the big deal. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. they're, they're thinking like, oh, there's this big company, $2 million or $3 million or salespeople coming in. And it's like, I got this fish on the hook. And he's like, $2 million, $3 million deal. Like, I personally have a negative feeling on those stupid big deals because it's like you're spending lots of time reeling the fish in when you could be catching smaller fish. What's your kind of thoughts on that?
0: There's going to be a balance. I think part of it also depends on the type of solution you're building. Yeah. Some solutions right off the gate. They're enterprise solutions. My own startup was an HR workforce analytics product. We were built for enterprise. I came from Oracle. I knew the enterprise pain points. And we ended up building a solution that could help companies like PepsiCo or Caterpillar or John Deere to better understand their workforce and skills across an organization. So we already went in with the thesis that we had to be enterprise first. When I was at Stack Overflow, I was there to build out their SaaS business from the ground up. And that was the same thesis we had going in. We can build a SaaS product, but we need to be able to test it with a large enough number of users internal to see if this would even work. Stack Overflow is a big global community. When you try to take that platform and put it inside a company, well, now you need people to contribute. So again, because of the nature of the solution, our market was already enterprise. So you got to understand what your target market is right off the bat. But to your point, you can get lost in chasing deals. And I've been in enterprise sales for a while. I can tell you flat out, you can sometimes be chasing a deal for 12, 18, 24 months. And you don't have that runway as a typical startup to chase those deals if they're going to take that long. So you need to figure out, I want my big fish. I want to get those whales, but maybe can I get some, maybe some smaller fish along the way. So a few of our very earliest customers for our Stack Overflow Enterprise product weren't enterprises. They're were definitely big, but they weren't so big. And I recognize I can work with these smaller organizations that don't have such long procurement times or cycles or complex contracts. We can remove a lot of steps along a typical enterprise sales process that you couldn't do if you're going to work with a big global bank or you know big global manufacturer. So try to identify folks that could be still in your target market, but maybe a little bit easier to work with. You know, for example, cloud native providers or like a digital natives, for example, really good place to start because they don't necessarily have or are encumbered by a lot of the processes of more legacy type organizations. And that's exactly who I targeted initially for the very first customers when I was at Stack Overflow. Then we worked our way up in unison With working with those big, big customers that, yes, did take a year plus to close. So make sure you just give yourself that flexibility, give yourself a lot more options, a lot more irons in the fire. So you're at least getting some revenue in the near term, you know, in a few months
1: time, as opposed to a year's time. It must be incredibly frustrating to watch these founders kind of chase that 24 month deal, not knowing it would be 24 months going out of it. Promise it'd be like close in six, eight months and just keeps dragging and dragging and dragging. Something I've been thinking a lot about for a lot of different companies and company founders is like mental health. How did you deal personally with like kind of the strain and the loneliness of it? And then what advice would you give to other founders in a similar situation?
0: When I was a founder, one of the things that I recognized that I didn't have a lot of people close to me that were going through the same thing. And it's, it's certainly nice to be able to have family and my spouse, but they're not understanding from the same perspective that I'm seeing and I'm experiencing. So find those connections. Find other people that are going through the same thing. The second thing I would say is it's valuable to have a mentor. I think we can be very stubborn, hard headed as founders. We think we have all the answers when we don't really know anything. And it's good to hear that outside perspective so you can get out of your own head. And even if you don't necessarily take a mentor's advice, it's good at least to talk about it, to have it on the table. And I found that the most valuable mentor sessions that I've had wasn't them just telling me war stories of what they did. That's a terrible mentorship relationship. The better mentoring session, it's more of a back and forth and it's more about questions and exploring what you know as a founder. And if you're able to find a a mentor who asks really good questions, I think you're gonna be better off in getting a lot of the tangled spaghetti of your mind Mm. to be a bit more clear. And then the last thing I'd say is Wellness doesn't get a lot of, as much attention as it should for founders, because the ethos of it's all on you, you got to make it work. And that just creates a lot of pressures to to burn the midnight oil, to just work continuously. I'm a workaholic and it's taken me years to not only realize that, but also to realize that I do have limits. We all have limits and it's not an age thing. Some of the most successful entrepreneurs I know are 50 plus in age. The reason that they're successful is because early on, they understood those limits and they didn't try to burn themselves out early on in their career. I mean, you're going to work hard, but that's different than working all out. You got to do the hard work, but you also got to give yourself the downtime. So that means tuning out. It means finding some other outlets. It means finding other hobbies or people you can connect with so you don't always focus in and build your life around your startup. And it's hard for founders to necessarily internalize that, but I got to tell you from my own personal experience and many founders I've spoken to in my time here at AWS you know, as a startup advocate, because I hear all these stories, you got to find time to remove yourself from the startup and take time to refresh because you're not going to be anywhere near as effective if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not taking vacation time. And that also feeds into the culture of your own company because people see what you do as a founder right. and they take cues. So also by you not taking care of yourself, that's sending a signal to
1: everyone else. Yeah, that's very important advice. Thank you. In closing, if there's any final thoughts you might have to share.
0: Keep building. The journey's long and hard, but there's also an incredibly rich ecosystem that's been building. Just in speaking with the AWS team here that's supporting startups Uh, We've been putting together some incredible programs, uh, whether it's programs around accelerators, whether it's supporting startups in different ways through jumpstart programs, activate other ways that we are helping startups. There are ways that you can get help to support what you're doing in that process of going from idea and hopefully all the way to a really awesome exit. So that would be my message to all the Taipei startups here. And for those that are thinking about it, you know, to have that entrepreneurial spirit, now is the best time to dive in. You know, it's not tomorrow, it's not the next day. Think about what you can build today. You know, listen to the problems that are out there as you're talking to other companies, as you're talking to consumers, because the ideas are out there. They just need someone talented and driven to make it
1: happen. Great. Mark Birch, thank you so much for coming on to the show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Really
1: enjoyed it.